0: Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest. March 16th, 2023, the go-ahead, a bailout edition. I am David Plotz of CityCast in Washington, D.C., back in Washington, D.C., out of Las Vegas, a few. I'm joined by Emily Bazelon of New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School from New Haven. Hello, Emily. hello. Hello. And by John Dickerson of CBS Prime Time from Gotham City itself, Manhattan. Hello, John.
1: Here I am. Hello, David and Emily.
0: This week on the Gabfest, the collapse and rescue—sort of rescue—of Silicon Valley Bank. We'll talk to David Leonhardt of the New York Times about whether the global banking system is on the verge of catastrophe. Then Ron DeSantis describes the Ukraine war as a territorial dispute that is not in the U.S.'s national interest to get tangled up in. The Republican Party is having a civil war about Ukraine. How will it turn out? Then law schools and conservatives are having an exciting week. University of Pennsylvania is trying to punish a tenured professor, Amy Wax, for nasty things that she has said in public and perhaps also to students, while Stanford University Law School convulses over the shutdown of a conservative judge invited to speak by the school's Federalist society students it's it's a doozy emily's gonna emily's gonna enjoy this topic i'm gonna enjoy that topic plus we will have cocktail chatter
2: it is ryan here and i have a question for you what do you do when you win like are you a fist pumper
0: We're joined, thank God, by David Leonhardt of The New York Times, the brilliant newsletter writer and financial journalist, to discuss the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank and the move by the U.S. government to guarantee their deposits, even for businesses, institutions that had more than the insured limit of $250,000, the FDIC limit of $250,000 at the bank. We want to talk to David about why SVB, which was the 16th largest American bank, In particular, why that bank collapsed, whether there is systemic risk to global banking, as we've seen uh, certainly anxiety about the Credit Suisse, the Swiss bank this week, um, and whether a global contagion is likely, and also whether SVB was bailed out. So, David, I know this is is not an easy task, but can you quickly explain what SVB is slash was, why it collapsed, and why the U.S. government stepped in to protect its
2: depositors? I will try. It's great to be back on the show. Um, So SVB was a bank that lent a lot of money to startups. And it was often willing to take risks on startups that other banks were not. And then it developed a reputation as a bank that lent to startups. And and these things build on on each other, as is often the case. Um, When banks when 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 we put our money in a bank, a bank can't just keep it in a safe because it couldn't pay interest if it did that, right? It needs to make money on the money that we give to the bank in order to pay us interest. And the question is, what does the bank do in order to make money so it can pay us interest? Does it take big risks, which also allows the bank to earn higher profits and allows its executives to make more money? Or does it take modest risks. And the executives of SVB claimed they were taking very moderate risks. They were investing in bonds. Um, But what happened when the Federal Reserve started raising interest rates to bring down inflation was it hammered the price of those bonds, which it's important to remember was not some shocking black swan event, right? <laughs> I mean, you can see it from space. So that essentially is what happened. And then people started to get anxious when, when the bank announced that it was having these problems. And we had a classic bank run in which um, different clients of the bank were worried that they would be last in line to get their money out. And there would be no more money. And they all went for their money. And um, it's the scene from movies. And so it collapsed. And so that's the kind of background of, of, of what happened. And then that gets into the question of, well, did it present real risks to other places? And how might we avoid repeating this problem in the future?
3: So one of the obvious questions I have is what role the 2018 easing of um, regulations on mid-sized banks exactly like this one played in this um, collapse of this particular bank And then how are we supposed to think about what the government doesn't want to call a bailout, but the full making whole of depositors of SVB instead of sticking to the lower limit that normally the FDIC would use? I want to note that I do understand that um, the government is not making the bank executives or the shareholders or bondholders whole, but there is some kind of taking risk out of the equation or not holding at least the depositors responsible for the risks the bank was taking that's now going to reverberate through the system. And I wonder how you think about that.
2: Yes, I believe the word is bailout. So there are there definitely are nuances here. I think that the easing of the regulations did play a role here. I mean, we we eased regulations on precisely these kinds of banks, in part because of lobbying from this bank. And um, and then it had a problem. And the nuance that that you were just capturing there, Emily, is the fact that Um, what the Biden administration and banking regulators emphasized is that these aren't taxpayer dollars that are making these higher deposits whole. It's fees that are being assessed on other banks. And so just as an important point of background here, the law already would have Given everyone who had less than two hundred and fifty thousand dollars in the bank would have they would have all gotten their money back the, the what the additional step did was it made sure that people who had more than two hundred and fifty thousand dollars got their money back and The justification for that is if you didn't do that at lots of other banks people who had more than two hundred and fifty thousand dollars Would start pulling their money worried that something similar would be going on And then we would have a financial crisis in which all kinds of banks would start failing The really hard situation here is that when we have one of these um, crises or mini crises or potential crises, it is very difficult for regulators just to say, let's roll the dice and see what happens. And so that's what we had this past weekend, right? The SVP had collapsed, signature had collapsed. There was some concern about how many others were going to collapse. And I think that what really haunts a lot of regulators, they're not completely honest about this in public, but what haunts them is Lehman Brothers during the financial crisis. And the way they're not honest about this is they claim that they had, there was nothing they could do. The law didn't allow them to rescue Lehman Brothers. But I'm pretty skeptical of that because the law didn't allow them to do lots of things that they did during the financial crisis. And I say that as praise right? Ben Bernanke um, and Henry Paulson in the Bush Treasury Department and then Tim Geithner in the Obama Treasury Department were incredibly creative and aggressive. And that financial crisis did not become a depression. And they were not so aggressive and creative with Lehman Brothers. I think they had the attitude of, look, eh, we're not really sure exactly how to do this. And also, we can't just save every bank. And so they let Lehman go. And then the crisis got so much worse. SVB is not Lehman in terms of size. But you can't know for sure that letting a bank fail won't lead to these problems. And so to me, the question is, We, how do we prevent more situations like this? Because in the moment, I do think history argues for being aggressive about bailouts in the moment. And so what we need is policies to reduce the number of bailouts. And I think the mistake here is not so much what they did over last weekend, which reduced the odds of a larger crisis. In some unknowable way, but did reduce it. But why is it that we keep finding ourselves in this situation in which we underregulate banks and are forced to bail them out to avoid really terrible uh, consequences?
1: One of the things that Bernanke and Geithner um, and Paulson write about in their book about the bailout is they have a wonderful passage about why banks have the architecture they do, because banks basically exist on confidence. And so they have these big imposing structures to suggest visually that your money is in a safe place and you should have confidence in that. And I wonder whether confidence ain't what it used to be in this hyper online public square we have right now. And that if there was no actual systemic risk, which is to say there weren't a whole lot of other banks that had massive amounts of their assets invested in long-term bonds, but had a more diversified portfolio and had assets to cover withdrawals if the moment came. But instead, the risk that they were trying to fix with this bailout was kind of a performance. Uh, It was a performance bailout, which was to kind of stem the tide of the confidence shock that would be, again, not necessarily based on fundamentals, but based on the fact that everybody's talking to everybody and it gets all whipped up. Um, now, you could make the opposite case, which is the actions they took actually freaked everybody out. Oh, my God, this is so serious. The Treasury, the Fed, FDIC, you know, OCC had to get together and fix it. So we really must have a problem. What do you think about the re- confidence in this moment in, in a
2: hyper-connected world? I mean, I think to to some extent, bank crises are, are rarely based on fundamentals. Right, they're they're based on psychology, and and so you have to go at the psychology in order to stop them. The problem in all these things is that as a as someone who who as an investor or as a depositor in a bank, I don't know. Am I going to be the one who's going to be left out in the cold? So I better just go get my money now, right? And then regulators have the same uncertainty. They don't know whether this is going to lead to some huge problem, and and they'd rather err on the side of being aggressive. I, I think the big lesson here really is that we need bank regulation and w- w- th- this idea of trusting the market is a really nice idea on 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 a whiteboard <laughs> and it doesn't work often in the real world so the specific idea f- here is that the people who are depositing more than $250,000 are sufficiently sophisticated and they have a sufficient stake in the game that they're going to be monitoring the bank and making sure that the bank isn't taking big risks. But that's not the way the world works, right? I mean, if you're a company that has a million dollars at Silicon Valley Bank, but you're a coffee chain or you're a payment method or you're you know, some social media app, you're not sitting around analyzing SVB's balance sheets to figure out whether they're doing a good job. And so I think what we need probably is a combination of stricter government regulation and just saying to banks, look, here's the deal. When you get in trouble, we're going to bail you out. And we're not going to do that uh, to a newspaper. (laughs) We're not going to do it to a restaurant chain, we are going to bail you out when you get in trouble. And what that means is we're going we're to monitor you much more closely. We're going to put restrictions on how much you can invest. Those restrictions are going to reduce the profits you can earn. And that's just the way it goes. Um, and then the second thing is you can bring in, I think, more market discipline by, by requiring these banks to raise more money from investors, which has Two advantages: th- th- raising more money from investors basically creates more of a cushion, so that when they get into trouble, um, when the s- value of some of their assets decline, they basically have m- more money in the bank, as it were. But the second reason is investors actually are sophisticated enough to be monitoring a bank, and and in a way that kind of clients aren't to be saying, "Hey, you got to get you got to be more careful here."
0: I want to follow up on a couple of points you made there, David. First of all, I think what you just said about telling the banks they'll be bailed out makes sense. Although I would, I hope they would also say, but you will lose your job because there's, I do think that there has to be some sort of moral hazard for bank executives who do stupid things. One of the things that was made people so furious about the financial crisis and its outcome was that the people who had been responsible for the financial institutions did not seem to bear any price. It is satisfying that that the Silicon Valley bank people seem to be out of a job and that the investors have lost their money. So that is one additive point I would note. And then the other is I was so I was CEO of a venture back company for a number of years, and there were definitely periods of time, uh, for the whole time, in fact, where we had more than two hundred fifty thousand dollars that was sitting in a bank account because we didn't, we chose not to invest the the money that we'd raise because we were advised not to. And I never thought once. I mean, maybe I thought once about. The risk that it was taken it was not our money was not in silicon valley bank but i do think it's it's ridiculous to think that the clients themselves you shouldn't have to shop for a bank uh and th- you, when you put money in a bank you sort of think like it's a bank okay it's it's a that's what it is it's there it has my money and you shouldn't have to spend a ton of time if you were especially if you're basically a small business thinking about it's safety and having to do all kinds of financial shenanigans to break your assets up into $249,000 tranches to keep it safe. I mean, that seems excessive to me.
2: Yeah. And I think the important thing is that it's not just like, well, tough on you. You didn't check it. The, the issue is that in the end, the the taxpayers are going to end up bailing them out. And that's why we have to add something. I would add something to your first point, David. So I completely agree that one of the big mistakes the Obama administration made was not being tough enough and not understanding the politics of this and not just the politics, but the future incentives. And Tim Geithner liked to say a crisis isn't when you want to get Old Testament on people. And I understand why he said that. But it's also, it's a little bit too narrow a way to think about it. Um, uh, and I would add something to, to your point. It's not just that we need to make sure that these bankers lose their jobs and the stockholders in SVP, SVB lose money. But we also have to do things on the front end because... A lot of the income that the executives of SVB made over the last decade were because of the implicit guarantee that, that in the end they could be bailed out. And So it's not simply making sure that at the end they lose their jobs, although that's very important. It's also putting in place regulations that restrict the amount of money that they can make on the upside given that they are basically a protected industry who uh, are being protected by the American taxpayers. And so that looks like the kind of regulations that force them to hold more money and bring down their profits. I would also argue um, it, it looks like higher tax rates, right? And and acknowledging that we have all kinds of ways in which our government and our taxpayers subsidize finance and, and that we should also tax finance, whether it's a finance-specific tax or whether it's simply higher marginal tax rates on very high incomes that allow the American taxpayers to recoup the benefits they are giving to finance.
1: David, in terms of the, the blame, um, you know as you said the 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 fact that rates were increasing and the and the quality of these long-term bonds was decreasing should have you know was not a hard thing to see so is that a particular failure of the um managers of the bank to not diversify their their assets one and I'll just bolt to that do you think this affects the feds um next rate increases that even if there's not systemic risk as a, as a result of a lot of other people being in these kinds of investments,
2: that nevertheless the Fed will maybe hit pause. I don't want to exaggerate how much time I've spent looking at SVB's particular strategy, but I think the answer to your first question is yes. Right, Self-evidently, uh, they, fail, <laughs> uh, they failed to, uh, to think about a, a strategy that would uh, reduce risk at a time when interest rates were going to be rising, as everyone knew right? Everyone knew that interest rates would be rising. I do think this is likely to affect how aggressively the Fed raises rates. But the Fed's in a tough spot here because for for several months late last year, it really looked like inflation was plummeting. Um, And as we've gotten more data uh, in early 2023, the inflation numbers, they're still down, but they're not down as much as we might have thought and hoped a couple months ago. And so the Fed does have a hard job here It, on the one hand, needs to think about how to keep bringing inflation down. Six percent annual inflation, which is the number we got this past week, is not a place where we should feel okay. That's bad for a lot of people. It's bad for a lot of people who don't make a lot of money. Um, On the other hand, raising rates has the um, real potential to put people out of work. And um, so, if the Fed decides to slow down a little bit in order to reduce the risk of financial crises, what they'll also be doing is reducing the risk of sparking a recession, but they'll be um, increasing the risk that inflation stays higher for longer. And um, look, inflation's really bad. (laughs) Uh, Inflation ends up hurting more people uh, than unemployment does. Unemployment hurts people much, much worse, Um, but inflation has a cost as well. And the Fed has a hard job here. David Leonhardt
0: of the New York Times writes the morning, a fantastic daily newsletter David, thanks for coming back on the GabFest, as always. Thank you for having me. Slate Plus listeners, you get bonus segments on the GabFest every week. Every week, a bonus segment from us. Incredible. Just for the price of joining Slate Plus, which you do by going to slate.com slash GabFest Plus. And those discussions are so much fun. And today we have a topic we're close to our hearts, which is, is remote work terrible for your health? There's a new piece in the New York Times arguing that Working remotely could be really bad for you in ways that maybe you haven't thought about. Go to Slate.com slash GapFest Plus to become a member. You can also get ad-free Slate Podcasts. You get bonus segments and whole, whole extra episodes of Slate Podcasts and all kinds of other goodies. Slate.com slash GapFest plus. This episode of the Gapfest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? By visiting auraframes.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best selling frame. That's A U R A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply.
4: Okay, round two.
0: Name something that's not boring.
5: A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh?
0: Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over a 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to
2: redeem some serious prizes.
5: JumbaCasino.com.
2: Number 17 is by law. 18+ terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
0: Ron DeSantis, Republican frontrunner, joined former President Trump this week in expressing skepticism about American support for Ukraine, calling the war a territorial dispute. While DeSantis so far has not yet gone as far as Trump in expressing admiration for Vladimir Putin, what he told Tucker Carlson, who is also a Putin apologist, surely delighted the Russian leader. DeSantis was quickly criticized by the realist, hawkish, and establishment wings of the Republican Party, where support for Ukraine and support for American buttressing of the Ukrainian cause remains very strong. It's clear, John, that DeSantis is reflecting the views of a large percentage of Republican voters who are weary of U.S. support for Ukraine, right?
1: Well, yeah. I mean, he's expressing the views of about, depending on how you ask the question in the poll, um, you know, anywhere from 40 to 60 percent of the Republican Party. I think the central tension of this, well, there are many. There are many things. One, it's this riding two horses problem. He's appealing to the MAGA wing of the party, the Trump wing of the party, the um, uh, sort of isolationist um, America first part of the party, but he's also got to appeal to the whatever the rest of the party is, whether you call it the like leftover Reagan feeling part of the party or the neocon part of the party or whatever else you want to call it. And he's got to try to appeal to both. He's going to have a very hard time taking votes away from the Trump portion So this was, you know, something he may believe if he believes it, he probably should have thought it through a little bit more because the way um, in which he like framing it as a territorial dispute, um, framing it as if the Ukrainians were kind of an equal body. And this um, in this uh, instance, not a country that was invaded by a malevolent dictator, you know, he just botched it sort of six different ways. And of course, as every listener knows, this matters because it, it it shows the rank ordering of possibly a nominee's view about one of the things that's really the most important for presidents because presidents get so much, you, you know, control over foreign policy. Um, and so here, his first big move out of the gate um, has been a, a kind of sloppy and confused one. Will Salatan uh, wrote a great piece in the bulwark, uh, deconstructing
0: de position on which i'm relying here can you dig into that john why why is it sloppy i mean like what 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 is the way he botched it you think
1: well i think first of all um by calling it a territorial dispute he is he immediately basically or calling it a border dispute he basically takes the he he frames it immediately on in the russian side it's not a territorial, territorial dispute it's an invasion and also if ukraine is a territorial dispute and this goes to a second point one of his points is we got to be tough on china well, and you know the the Joe Biden was deeply weak when he didn't shoot down the balloon immediately. My guess is that the Chinese are taking signals about U.S. resolve um, much more clearly from how long the U.S. supports Ukraine and builds a coalition to support Ukraine than anything Joe Biden did about a balloon. Um, so, uh, so it's confused in that fashion too. If you're if you're saying be strong on China, well, there are ways in which your support for um, You know, uh, the aggrieved party and invasions kind of matters when China is contemplating invading Taiwan, which, by the way, you could describe as a border dispute. Um, So that's that's a problem. He also suggests that, you know, the Ukrainians would have been, you know, they were doing fine and the Russian army isn't very good. Well, that's because the Ukrainians have been supported by US supplies and training. Um, so that misunderstands the nature of the conflict. Um, also, he framed US support for Ukraine as funding the conflict. Again, um, you can s- wrestle to semantics and say, well, I mean, to the extent they're funding it and it is a conflict, they're funding the conflict, but it puts the causal arrow in a different place than reality would suggest it is. The US is helping Ukraine defend itself against an unprovoked invasion. The you know, And this is all a part of a kind of different assessment of Russia than I think is the consensus one on both the left and the right. And by the way, there's, perfect territory to sit on and say, you know, this is awful. It's an invasion and the world should rally around. But the U.S. doesn't have, um, you know, has scarce resources and there are dangers of provoking Russia with a nuclear war. And so we shouldn't extend ourselves as much as we can. But you can hold that position without having to redefine the facts of the case. And when you redefine the facts of the case to support your position, it suggests a habit of mind that might not be so Uh, wonderful when you're going to get in a job where you have to face thousands of national security challenges.
3: I feel pretty cynical about this. I mean, many prominent Republicans came out and disagreed strongly with DeSantis and also have rejected Donald Trump's position on Ukraine, saying this is important for the United States to be involved in helping Ukraine defend itself. Tucker Carlson is the sort of main skeptic about Ukraine beating that drum on Fox News. And you have Trump, you know, who was an isolationist while he was president, was really reluctant to get involved in conflicts abroad. And then you have DeSantis in what feels like just an act of opportunism getting on this bandwagon. And it just seems like you could imagine him running for president, at least during the primaries, in this foreign policy stance where you just oppose what the Biden administration is doing. If they're being helpful to Ukraine, then that's the wrong policy. If they're not shooting down the balloons in China, then that's the wrong policy from China, I should say. And it just seems like there isn't a coherence here. And I just find that disturbing. Like, what is this person's views really? And what does it say about the Republican Party in terms of its stances on foreign policy? Is it just completely divided and sort of cracked down the middle?
0: Call me even more cynical, but there was always in, in U.S. foreign policy, there was always this position, which is that you're, everyone was a hawk on China until they got into office, and then they became a dove. Like, that's no longer the case. But it was it was a totally opportunistic, cynical position, which is that it was always better to be beating up China when you're exterior, but when you're actually in charge of all this economic relationship and this great power relationship—you have to be more realistic about it. And so, I don't, Ron DeSantis would not be the first politician in history who took an opportunistic stance on a foreign policy issue while running for office because it was advantageous. It's, as John said, it's the majority of the party. So, for for DeSantis to ally himself with that seems to me like potentially just good politics. I I don't think it tells us anything about how he might govern. It does tell us that he's a opportunistic person but we kind of on the other hand
1: when the instinct is i think i I think to the extent that you can learn something from campaigns you'd rather learn what their ability to understand the world and its activities is instead of learning that their first instinct is to redefine the world and the facts of the case um now you can say well that's just politics and that's a campaign Sure, but you want to have some evidence that when the campaign ends, they have the proper way to look at the world. Um, And because we frame so many things in politics now, it's not entirely certain that some people can get into office and actually have a basic way to understand the threats of the world um, and the responsibilities of free nations. Um, So I think as a first move... um, redefining the facts of the case is uh, is not a super great signal uh, about the underlying attributes of his world foreign policy worldview.
0: Do you think, Emily, I mean, it seems to me like there, one of two things could happen. Assume, assume DeSantis has a successful presidential campaign. One of the two things could happen. Either the whole party's center of gravity shifts away from support for Ukraine towards neutrality and disengagement and Isolationism and a rejection of Europe, or DeSantis just kind of basically migrates towards the McConnell Rubio Cornyn, you know Reagan view of of this, and and once once he has actual power, he moves towards actually engaging with it and and supporting the Ukrainians if he were actually in office.
3: I mean, that just feels like so many steps down the road. You want to see him have a more sophisticated grasp of these issues now. And I mean, the obvious potshot he opened himself up to was that he's governor, he doesn't have any foreign policy experience. And the Republicans who are in the Senate and in Congress who are on these committees were like, you don't know what you're talking about. So I I mean, I guess I basically align myself with John in terms of what this shows about what he's would be like in office. And I don't especially want to have faith in the idea of like, oh, well, everyone moderates because realism takes over once you're president. I feel like the long extended job interview of campaigning for president, which John has thought so much about, should be about revealing that you are thinking comprehensively, not that someone should have faith that once you show up and do the job, you'll just like fix stuff.
0: I agree with both of you. I guess when I think about like how how does Trump think about – about this issue versus how does DeSantis think about this issue. I'm pretty sure that Trump is a straight up isolationist who like really sympathizes with Vladimir Putin. And we have the evidence of that. Like and DeSantis, who's expressed basically Trumpy positions here, I don't think I think has a totally different is approaching it from a totally different, completely cynical, politically opportunistic position. And that makes me not nearly as worried. I would be much more worried about Trump presidency and what would happen to the Ukraine war than I would at this moment, than I would about a DeSantis one.
1: Yeah. Um, however, the foreign policy landscape for the next president or the next term of the existing president is going to be super tricky. It's not just Europe and and Ukraine. What's happening in China and um, Taiwan is requires some considered thinking and requires a. a ground layer that you can refer back to so because it's going to get hot and heavy and weird and you need to know what you know and know what you believe and if you're always tailoring it to the moment um there's too much to figure out in the moment to figure out what u.s policy should be um so it would be great if you had basic views um that you could rely on when the you know when things start flowing
0: i have one last question which is I don't think this is true of DeSantis, but it's definitely true of Trump. It's true of Carlson. And there, there are a bunch of Republicans who are actually sympathetic to Putin rather than to Ukraine and Zelensky. I understand the instinct not to want to be engaged heavily in the war, but I'm baffled by those people who not only don't want to be engaged heavily in the war, but also genuinely sympathize with Putin. Where, does that, where is that coming from? in the republican party there's i don't think that's the majority of the party but there is a there's a strong constituency within it i agree there are places you can there are
1: other positions you can take which would have the same practical effect but wouldn't have that um putin favoring quality to it and i don't know i mean there are armchair psychology answers one could give but uh that's out of my field um and it is um it is strange because there are arguments you could make for not extending U.S. commitments as, as far as the U.S. as as far as Biden has, um, even and there are arguments against confronting China um, as much as Biden is with um, semiconductor policy and you know nuclear submarine agreements with uh, Australians and Brits. Um, but those arguments aren't the ones being made. It's more. It's something else.
5: The future of America is in your hands. This is not a movie trailer, and it's not a political ad, but it is a call to action. I'm Mila Atmos, and I'm passionate about unlocking the power of everyday citizens. On our podcast, Future Hindsight, we take big ideas about civic life and democracy and turn them into action items for you and me. Every Thursday, we talk to bold activists and civic innovators to help you understand your power and your power to change the status quo. Find us at futurehindsight.com or wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: As substacker and lawyer David Latt said so brilliantly this week, for years, Yale has been the undisputed top-ranked law school for free speech squabbles. But now, Emily, someone's in the rearview mirror, Penn and Stanford are challenging you for ridiculous free speech law school fights. We have two this week. At Stanford, Judge Kyle Duncan, a Fifth Circuit judge who is... Uh, who is loathed and beloved for his extremely conservative views on gay and trans issues for, among other things, voting rights issues, was shouted down by students at an appearance organized by the Federalist Society at Stanford. And then those students who were shouting him down were kind of abetted by a Stanford dean who encouraged them. And at Penn, the law school is moving to punish and perhaps even strip the tenure from Amy Wax, an extremely right-wing professor who has made very grotesque remarks about black Americans, gay people, Asian Americans in public appearances, and possibly also derided students as well, uh, more privately.
3: Is accused of deriding students by the students.
0: Yes. Let's start with a Kyle Duncan episode, Emily. Uh, Ken White, writing in his substack, Popat, wrote a brilliant piece, I think, where he just deplored the behavior of everyone. The Federalist Society invited Duncan to come uh, to Stanford, not because they wanted to have a reasoned discussion, but because they knew that Duncan would be a provocation and that they could own the libs and they could cause controversy. Duncan came, not necessarily because he wanted to give a you know a, a, a legal tome, a, a sort of weighty legal address, but. Perhaps so he could spar explosively with law students and be a, a victim of. Well,
3: and he of, walked in taping on his iPhone.
0: Okay, he walked in taping on his iPhone, and he, so he was there. He was there expecting there to be a fight. Uh, the students who opposed Duncan's speech first protested quite reasonably with fire, flyers and and disruptive uh, con, uh, disruptive speech outside the venue, but then in a heckling way, basically prevented. Duncan from giving his speech and he was unable to give his speech. Uh, And then the administration did not act to secure Duncan's right to speak. And in fact, even in some ways encourage the people who are deplatforming Duncan. It is a bad look as White says for everyone. So Emily, is it a bad look for everyone? Is there, is there a greater victim here? Everyone wanted to be a victim.
3: It's (laughs) a bad look for everyone. I mean, I think that, there's this basic um, disagreement, I would argue, confusion going on about free speech on campus. So it is one thing to disagree with a speaker and to protest a speaker, but shouting down a speaker and making it impossible for them to actually express their views is something that on most campuses you're not allowed to do. And the reason for that is that the campus is supposed to be an environment in which people are talking about ideas. they Arguing with each other, they're not just obliterating one side. Um, and of course, the justification for this is that if you don't, if you have an environment in which a speaker can be shouted down, it's called a heckler's veto, that in the end, that's always going to um, benefit the majority, the large majority who can show up and swarm and mob. And that's going to be bad for the most vulnerable people in the society, ultimately. The students at Stanford, as happened at Yale last year, don't see it that way. They think that these ideas are so harmful that they um, must be shouted down in the moment. I mean, there's always then some backtracking on the part of the students. Oh, the event really was allowed to take place. We were just being, you know, vociferous and expressing our views. But, But really, there's a lot of shouting down that happens. And I think it's important to recognize that. The associate dean who showed up, um, really added to this. While well, she sort of grudgingly said in the end, yes, you're welcome to speak here, she also uh, used this weird phrase, is the juice worth the squeeze, which Duncan didn't understand. I confess, I didn't really understand either. But basically, she said to him, is what you have to say so incredibly important that it's worth the division that you're causing here? that's not the test for having a controversial speaker on campus. And so that was, I think, um, distressing if you're a free speech advocate. And then, of course, you have this problem where the university has to decide to react how to react. In this case, the dean of Stanford, Jenny Martinez, um, and the president apologized to Duncan, which I think was uh, the right move given what was happening. But then the students very much protested Jenny Martinez's class the next day, and I so I think from the perspective of Some of the faculty at Stanford, this is just seems like the students have not absorbed this kind of basic idea. And then, of course, you create this endlessly mockable um, owning by the conservatives of the libs where they can say over and over again, these are law students who need to know how to argue and how to confront ideas they don't like, not just shout them down.
0: I do not understand why they haven't learned not to take the bait. Who gives a heck? rats ass that some guy has shown up and given a speech let him give a speech to 12 federalist society students on the campus who cares use indifference indifference is such an effective means of of protest in this situation especially when you're the dominant culture when you're the dominant culture just like don't bother to show up like no one it will not get the publicity it will not no one will cover it it will not uh, cause any controversy he will not get to be a victim he'll give a really boring speech Those federal society people will be so disappointed and everyone goes home disappointed and instead they just they just take the bait every fucking time
1: it also seems you could use you know mocking and ridicule and wise um undermining in another venue um to uh, both show how brilliant you are and not the t- and not take the bait but I think one of the points that Ken White made is that the associate dean essentially created a norm in which a, a person's subjective reaction to a speech is justification for suppressing it, which is just b- backwards uh, and not a good not a good standard. Also, I guess the other point would be that, um, you know, you don't want to have the heckler's veto because it takes a place where you're supposed to use reason to overcome brute force and you reverse it and make brute force all you need to win instead of reason. And brute force doesn't require you to wrestle with the ideas and come up with a sharp response um, for how to destroy these ideas, which are going to live for all of human history um, and need sharp advocates on the other side who who have really sharp brains and can dismantle these quickly um, in the way, you know, that um, Ken did in his Substack piece. You know, That's what they're there supposed to be learning is how to dismantle them with the tools of reason rather than yelling.
3: I think part of what's going on here is this um, issue, David, you raised of the dominant culture. So there's no question that at Stanford and Yale, the progressive students are the dominant culture in that environment. I mean, there are so many fewer Federalist Society members. And indeed, like that's a kind of route to social shunning in a lot of contexts. At the same time out in the real world of the United States of America, of course, conservative have lots of political power. And I think the students sort of, are in that mindset, and then they have this idea that this speech or these actions by this judge are really harming vulnerable people outside of the law school, and that absorbs a lot of their brain space and their thinking, and then that changes the way they respond inside the law school. And, you know, in my view, they kind of lose sight of the fact that they are dominant within the law school and that that creates a different set of expectations, or at least it should.
0: And also, I mean, I guess if you're playing the long game— the damage that Kyle Duncan is doing is not by giving a speech to 16 Federalist Society students at Stanford, if you believe this. He's doing it by being a judge on the Fifth Circuit. And the reason he's a judge on the Fifth Circuit is that they've there's been a very effective use of power by conservatives and by Republicans to get judges in this position. And so if you're and one of the effective uses of power is is presenting themselves as this sort of constant victims and they need to overcome it. And so if you are sort of a canny lefty what you want to do is sort of we we need to position ourselves for the long haul to win these judicial seats back and one way to do that is not by making ourselves to be just idiots who deplatform people and and are making the whole left look bad like they're they're making their for the in the long game making themselves look bad in this way is hurting their cause in the end
3: one thing i i've been thinking about and i'm not quite sure what to do about so One fears that – or I fear that I'm just old, right? That, like, it was ever thus, that people in their 50s or 40s or whatever and 60s look at the students and just say, like, oh, you're a bunch of rebels and you don't get it and, like, you should cut your hair. That's, like, my deep fear about myself. On the other hand – Universities have been having exactly these entanglements over free speech since the 60s. And that's when the universities came up with these policies that once you create, once a student group creates a forum on a campus, then that speaker gets to express their views and other people can argue, but they can't shout down. And this has come up, you know, in every sort of mini generation of students. and there have been some quite elegant solutions. So there is one moment at Yale, and I can't remember which controversial group it was, but the students all lined up outside and they silently protested. And the dean of the law school at the time, Guido Calabresi, stood with them. And then he came into the room and listened politely and was there while the students were listening and participating in a debate with the speaker. And I'm sure that this has happened at other schools. Um... But this idea that shouting down is the um, only morally urgent response, it just seems misguided and it seems like we've sort of been down this road before. And I do confess that although I see lots of harms and I see like how deeply disturbing Donald Trump's presidency was and I wonder if this is a lot of leftover agency, I don't totally understand why these students think that this is the way to go.
1: If the standard, if you can only be just by shouting people down, it doesn't respect one of the things I've always hated about good lawyers, which is that they can argue that for the rights of awful, terrible, bad, thoroughly objectionable people, because the rights protect those kinds of people as well.
0: I think one of the effects of the the summer of protests in 2020 is that people saw a protest and it is, it is more satisfying to do something active than it is to not. Like, p- p- activity is more fun than passivity. L- yelling is more fun than listening. And, and so I think the bias towards action, and this generation has a bias towards action, um, is, is okay. But the problem is it's the wrong form of action.
1: But weren't the protests of 2020 because the police power, the force power was, was controlled yeah. by the state, and you had to re—I to- mean, that's
0: no it, that's
1: totally
2: it's dif-
5: force against force, no, totally not different, force against reason. Totally,
0: totally different kinds of protests. I'm just saying that there's been—this generation has seen a lot of visible protest. Let's briefly just touch on the other fight, Amy Wax. Um, Emily, if Amy Wax got tenured at Penn, why are you not tenured? I don't understand. What?
3: That's I don't like really you, not where we need to go in this discussion. What? I'm not an academic. Are you kidding? But you just mean that she's so like, her views that? are odious and like, why shouldn't anyone have to ten- yeah, it? Mean, I think she has to be a good How did she get years years a job? Ago.
0: How did she get a job? What's her expertise?
1: Yeah, and then there's the question of odiousness and then also just skill, because a lot of the argumentation I've seen her do now, she's in a crouch and she's under attack and all that, but doesn't seem to be, you know, deeply Incisive.
3: Okay. Well, there are many academics who are not necessarily deeply incisive. I actually can't even remember what her field is right now, but I think she probably got tenure years ago. And then I don't know why she has taken this, what I think is just like a loathsome turn. The issue that interests me in all this. So, you know, a few years ago, Ted Ruger, who's the dean of Penn, who I should say is a friend of mine and a lovely person, said that Wax could no longer teach classes that students were required to take. In other words, you know, you had to choose to be in her classroom. For a long time, Ted resisted doing more because you have these protections when you have tenure. You're supposed to be able to freely express your views. And if the problems with Amy Wax were things that she was saying publicly, then doesn't that cross a sort of line here? What's happened recently is that Ted has asked for a committee to review um whether there should be some measures taken against wax. and the reason is concern that you referred to earlier, David, that she's actually doing things to students individually. Um you know, there, for example, she is accused of calling saying to some student, Who'd gone to a couple of Ivy League schools? Like you're, you, you only—you're a double affirmative action baby. Like you personally, that's the only reason you are here in this environment. And there are some other things like that that seem like wrong. I note, though, that the complaint that um, the law school has lodged against Wax also includes her public comments, and so I think. Then you have to decide how you feel about tenure protections. Like in any circumstance, do you want academics to be um, disciplined for things that they say publicly once they have tenure? And I'm kind of agnostic about this, honestly, because I'm sort of skeptical of tenure generally. I don't really understand why you can't just fire people sometimes for stuff you don't like that they did. I mean, maybe this is lame at will employee thing for me to say. But um, but I think people who really defend tenure and want academics to have, you know, the full range of free speech are really troubled by this aspect of the case.
0: Should you be protected for anything if you're if you believe in tenure, you should be protected for anything you say in your field, anything you say about anything. Um I mean, because I think what's weird is like you can imagine a chemist, somebody who's a chemistry professor who says absolutely despicable things about race and you're like well what does that have to do with their qualities to teach chemistry and i don't know whether it makes them like should that person be vulnerable to losing tenure because they've said things which are which are totally non-germane and therefore it's non-germane to their field and the things they're saying that are non-germane to their field they should be sanctioned for or Maybe the reverse, which is that it's non-germane to their field, so they should not be sanctioned for it because it has nothing to do with how they teach chemistry. I mean, that's why I was wondering what Amy Wax teaches. Like,
3: I have the answer to this question. I just looked it up. She Her work addresses issues in social welfare law and policy as well as the relationship of the family, the workplace, and labor markets, according oh, so to Wikipedia.
0: Very, yes. very germane to what she's talking about. So extremely germane to the subjects in which she's opined. Can I,
1: It seems like there are four categories here. There's the personal insults, stuff which if proved seems to be objectionable and not protected by tenure and it would it would probably be better if those who who defend her on pure free speech grounds would draw that line because it's a it may you want to protect even insane speech in a in a college environment but not when it's directed at individuals and those who want to protect the power of tenure to protect uh, to allow professors to say whatever they want you should draw that line clearly so that it doesn't get mixed up and a lot of them don't um i like the idea of tenure to protect people and what they teach and say but then there are two other things that seem to be to run in i don't know where they come in but one is as a pedagogical uh, point david you're chemistry professor um if what the te- chemistry professor says is so objectionable and so public that it offends the students and makes it harder to teach. Then I think you probably have a some issue to figure out there as an institution. And then connected to that is, you know, one of the things that Wax does is, and one of the things that's not that impressive is, she just um, craps all over the university. Um, and so, as a member of the university system. Con- having a public platform to constantly attack the university is probably just from a business perspective yeah. not great. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. You know, she says things also like to the alumni. She says, you know, you should give, um, you should give money to, um, you know, vocational schools. But then on the one hand, which is perfectly reasonable uh, thing to say. But in one breath, she's saying give money to vocational schools. And then she's calling them passive and craven, calling the alumni passive and craven. So that's somebody who's engaged in a different project than persuasion. You know, that's a person who's just engaged in some performance and some, um, you know, therapeutic evacuation of the mind, as we sometimes call it. Um, And uh, I'm not sure that as an institution, like from a business perspective, that's that's you know, great for any kind of business.
3: I will say that in the Penn situation, the students have voted with their feet and I expressed a kind of indifference, David, right? They're just not taking her classes. Like apparently her enrollment was down to like a couple of students. And I mean, that is a really interesting form of ostracism and social censure that students have in their power and they've exercised that at other schools. And um, I find that to be, I, yeah.
0: Should that lose her tenure? If no one takes her classes, should she lose tenure?
3: I mean, it's such a funny thing because it means you're not doing your job, right? Like you're there to teach. You have teaching requirements. But um, I don't think universities really have a way to say if nobody's taking your classes, then you're gone. Because frankly, there might be perfectly good faculty who people don't want to take their classes, right? So uh, yeah, that seems tricky.
0: I will note that as we leave this, that this is is a... A really a rare issue that in, the problem is in academia is the really the opposite one, which is that there's so many adjuncts so many people who have no protection who are afraid to say the things that they want to say or who are getting punished for saying things which are perfectly reasonable like these folks who criticize Israel and then lose their adjunct positions that's really the problem, not so much the amy waxes the tenured people they're very it's very rare that you have a, an issue like this let's go to cocktail chatter, John when you are uh, planning your next trip to Stanford, um, but having a drink as you think about it, what will you be chattering about?
1: Mine is a double chatter. One of it is, is related actually to travel. Um, there is a, um, uh, a city guesser um, feature on something called virtualvacation.us slash guess. Um, and you basically, it shows you any street in America or any um, area in America, and you have to guess where it is. It's
0: like, it's GeoGuessr.
1: It's GeoGuessr, yeah, exactly. Anyway, it's another enjoyable version of that. And I was both good and terrible at it. Um, And then the other is, (laughs) if any of you like cooking and are sometimes struck with the, um, having to try and cook something with a limited amount of items in the larder, um, my son introduced me to chat, I'm sorry, to Chef GPT, where you basically just put in the kind of cooking equipment you have and your recipes, and it comes up with something to cook. Um, and I should imagine for college students, this would be particularly um, useful. Um, but some of you just may only have, you know, condensed milk and rutabaga in the um, in the fridge, in which case they've got your answer.
0: Nobody cooks just from their fridge. You don't cook just from your fridge. You cook from your fridge. You cook from the spice cabinet. Well, cannon, I mean, you obviously. The well, pantry. you could put
3: that information Yeah, you into- could... Well,
0: but it's this thing where you take a photo
3: of, oh, of their fridge. You don't think it can handle a few photos? No, this Probably isn't cramping oh my
0: god oh my god God. ah fuck oh my god you can leave this in oh my god that's a terrible cramp oh my god that's a bad god
2: that's bad
1: oh heaven shit that's bad oh no
3: we really are getting old
0: oh my god this cramp is just not going away oh my god
3: sorry david
0: emily what's your chatter
3: So I wanted to recommend a story in The Marshall Project this week by Maurice Chama, who is a wonderful writer. It's called The Mercy Workers, and it's about this group of people who are called mitigation specialists, who I've been just totally fascinated by for years. Mitigation specialists come in in death penalty cases, usually after someone has been convicted, and their job is to try to find mitigating evidence that counsels against execution so basically what happened in this person's life that led them to commit you know what is usually a terrible murder um how do you think about this person as a human being it's this kind of excavation of history of often like family genealogy Sometimes people have, you know, medical records of head trauma in their chi- in their past or abusive childhoods, and it's very difficult work to do because often families have skeletons in their closets and they don't really want to talk about all the things about a person's past that might explain, though not excuse, um, the crime they've committed. And mo- it's unusual. I've tried in the past to get mitigation specialists to talk about their work and let me shadow them, and they have said no. Um, Because they feel like that would interfere with it. And Maurice succeeded in um, spending time with and really getting an intimate look inside the work of a mitigation specialist named Sarah Baldwin, who is working on a case from Florida of a man who has been on death row. And it's the story of how she um, is able to figure out what happened to him when he was younger. Um, So I really recommend it. The Mercy Workers in The Marshall Project by Maurice Chama.
0: My chatter. My chatter, which is I'm, I'm trying to hydrate. I'm in so much pain right now, I can't even discuss it. But my chatter is a story in the Washington Post about Mikhail Korotkov, Korotkov who's a train spotter. And he is now living in exile in Sri Lanka. He's a 31-year-old who's living in exile from Russia in Sri Lanka. And his problem besides the ukraine war which he seems to have left russia in part to avoid being drafted for it is that he was photographing trains in russia and he photographed vladimir putin's secret train uh vladimir putin apparently does not like to fly because planes can be easily tracked by other countries and so he has a huge armored train and um this guy like stands out and tries to photograph trains of all sorts in Russia and ended up photographing Putin's train at some point. And it's just a crazy story about a guy who has an interesting hobby. His photos are incredible. These photos of trains are gorgeous. I strongly recommend them. Trains on the Russian landscape are something special because there's so much snow uh, surrounding these trains and the trains themselves are quite beautiful. Um, but the the one thing I would note is that he so he photographed Putin's train, and then he wrote about it. And you can see why after he wrote about it, he might be scared and would want to flee to another country because he wrote about Putin's train, quote, "Uh, diesel diesel locomotive TEP70BS-239 is not a very ordinary train. Mere mortals do not travel in such a train. Behind the drawn curtains of the windows of the carriages of this train lies darkness and decay. An ordinary person who gets into these walls turns into mincemeat. So I think maybe writing that about Putin might make Putin angry about you. We also have listener chatters, and our listener chatter uh, this week comes from an anonymous source. You should send your listener chatters to us at GabFest at Slate.com or tweet them to us at at SlateGabFest.
4: Hi, GabFest. Two weeks ago, Judy Heumann passed away. She was a lioness of the disability rights movement and one of the ringleaders of the 1977 sit-in of a federal building in San Francisco which forced the implementation of Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act, a precursor to the ADA. She later worked in the Clinton and Obama administrations, championing disability rights and access throughout the world. She used a wheelchair after contracting polio as a toddler. When she was a child, she and her family fought for and won her right to be included in the classroom rather than confined at home, the first of many battles she fought and won for herself and many others. Throughout her life, she insisted that people and institutions reevaluate what they do to accommodate people with disabilities. An often repeated quote of hers is, Disability only becomes a tragedy for me when society fails to provide the things we need to lead our lives, job opportunities or barrier-free buildings, for example. It is not a tragedy to me that I'm living in a wheelchair. To me, she'll always be the family friend who rolled through life armed with a ballpoint pen, which she'd pull out when she encountered a car blocking a curb cut. First, she'd use the pen to deflate the car's tire. Then she'd use it to write a note explaining to the car's owner that their carelessness and selfishness had interfered with her mobility and that she was returning the favor. May her memory be a blessing.
0: Judy Human, incidentally, uh, was my downstairs neighbor. I live in the apartment right above the one uh, she lived in. I, I'd only met her a couple of times, but she was a real uh, beloved figure, not just in the world, but in this building where I live and and there's just been such an outpouring of love for her and appreciation for her and a sense of tremendous loss at, at her at her death. And I think you knew her, Emily.
3: Um, I didn't know her personally, but she was super nice to me on Twitter of all places. And if you have not seen the movie Crip Camp, this is an occasion to go watch that documentary, which is so fabulous and taught me so much about the disability rights movement.
0: our show for today. The Gabfest Fest is produced by Shana Roth, a researcher for one more week. Just one week after this is Bridget Dunlap. Our theme music is by They Might Be Giants. Ben Richmond, a senior director for podcast operations. Alicia Montgomery is the VP of audio for Slate. Please follow us on Twitter at @slategabfest. Tweet, chatter to us there. For Emily Bazelon, John Dickerson, I am David Plotz. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? probably better than me right now because you're not cramping uh because i'm working from home actually it's very apropos we're going to talk about an article in the new york times not bad in the new york times by jordan metzel called working from home is less healthy than you think Um, and jordan metzel argues that the effects of remote work are not as good as you might think they are that uh in some sense, people have more time for healthy behaviors, including exercise and bonding with family, which are two things that I did this morning before I cramped. I exercised, and then my, my kids are here, so I bonded with them. Um, but other people become less active, gain weight, and are isolated and depressed. And in general, um, Metzl reports that that people during pandemic who started working at home spent less time moving. They just did less moving around from everyday living. All three of us, in some ways, have moved from largely... I guess, John, you still you still go to work, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. You, But Emily, you and I had more work, somewhat more worky in office environments and now somewhat less. But do you feel that this is, you know, what did you make of this piece?
3: I think you have to push against exactly the issues that this piece raises because it is true that you can just like move from room to room in your house for the entire day and not really go outside if you choose to do that and that is not going to be a whole lot of moving and it's not going to be a whole lot of seeing people in real life and so I think you have to, like, recognize that risk that, you know, when you're going out in the world, there are all these small human interactions that just naturally happen. And not all of them are pleasant, but some of them are. And it makes you feel sort of connected to other people in your species who are not actually in your family. And that is positive. And so you have to make sure you're replacing that. And you also have to move your body around because you're not just, like, walking up the stairs or – um you know, going from the subway into the office. So I feel like it's important to be aware of all these things.
1: Yeah, I set all kinds of alarms so that I get up every, it's also the way I work, you know, in in an attempt to do deep work for uh, certain chunks of time. But at the end of the chunk of time, I force myself to walk all the way downstairs to the basement and then walk all the way back up, even though I have to go into the studio and that causes lots of movement. Plus, now we're very much into um, following the advice of Andrew Huberman um, at Stanford about getting out into the sunlight immediately upon
0: waking up. That was just a snippet from our Slate Plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole conversation, go to slate.com gabfest Plus to become a member today.
5: Step into the world of power, loyalty